I want to express my gratitude for the invitation to be with you in worship this morning. Uh, it is a privilege to be doing so with uh, one of our finest students at the seminary in Wilson and my dear and longtime friend Mary Kay Collins, and also to celebrate uh, your wonderful senior pastor, Amy Starr Redwine, with whom I have been fortunate enough to develop a, a wonderful friendship. She is a gift to this church, to the Presbytery, and to the PCUSA. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Amos, and this comes from chapter 7, verses 7 through 17. Listen now. This is, can be found on page 806-807 in your pew Bible. Listen now for the word of God. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, see, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, said to Jeroboam of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the very center of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel must go into exile away from his land. Amaziah said to Amos, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah, earn your bread there, prophecy there, but never again prophecy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is a temple of the kingdom. Then Amos answered Amaziah, I am no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I am a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. And the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophecy to my people Israel. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Do not preach against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be parceled out by line, and you yourself shall die in an unclean land, and Israel shall surely go into ex exile away from its land. Our New Testament lesson is a familiar passage, the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, 25 through 37, found in the New Testament section of your pew Bible on page 67. Let us seek to listen to this familiar story with fresh ears. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have given the right answer. Do this, and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. He put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will pay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. These are uncertain and contentious times we live in. It's no exaggeration to say that we live in an age of polarization. Our public discourse has devolved into a never-ending grudge match no matter the year or the issue and things only seem to be getting worse. Everyone has chosen a jersey and a team and continual shouting is the norm, whether on the cable network, social media, or even in real life. And everything from nat natural disasters to the Women's World Cup has become politicized. In many cases, there's honest disagreement over very tough issues, such as wealth inequality, our tax system, and how to ensure that everyone has access to affordable health care. There are many difficult questions to pose in July of 2019. How will millions of baby boomers be able to retire with Social Security and Medicare in such an uncertain position? What are we going to do about the tensions between urban centers like Richmond and Northern Virginia and rural areas across the Commonwealth? How will we address the addiction crisis that continues to claim lives in our city and around the country? And yes, what are we going to do about a broken immigration system with neither side willing to admit that their opposition is making good points and thousands of men, women, and children sitting in detention centers along the border with some of them being denied basic human rights? Will harsh political rhetoric have a crippling effect on our ability to address these major problems or, or find any semblance of common ground? These are major uncertainties which we will be addressing for years to come. The age of polarization has brought a level of anxiety that is worth naming and seeking to understand. This moment of uncertainty has consequences for our national mood. There's a new global study on happiness around the world, and the United States does not even crack the top ten. The countries at the top are smaller and less populous, places like Finland, Norway, and New Zealand. The 2019 World Happiness Report, and I didn't take it seriously at first until I read it, go to the link, it's substantive, claims that happiness in the U.S. peaked around 1990 and has been on a downward trend ever since. The biggest drop in happiness has occurred among teenagers, and the report speculates that the overuse of social media has caused physical inactivity, sleep deprivation, and feelings of isolation. So is there hope for the future, not just for becoming a happier country, but that we might reclaim community in the age of polarization? How can we find common ground and become neighbors once again? For us as Christians, this reclaiming of community cannot just be a possibility, but has to be something for which each of us strives. And one of the primary goals has to be a return to we rather than I. 
This is a cultural moment where I think this or I want that is carrying the day. Perhaps we could return to our discourse a bit more. The novelist Margaret Atwood longed for a return to a place where, quote, things unconnected with money will be valued more. Friends, family, a walk in the woods. I will be spoken less. We will return as people recognize that there is such a thing as a common good. A renewed focus on we can definitely help us face our problems together as we weather challenges and the decline of civility. And this move away from I and towards we requires us to reconsider what it means to be a neighbor in uncertain times. The parable of the Good Samaritan is probably the best known story in the New Testament. You all know the account of the wounded traveler who's beaten by thieves, left to die, ignored by a priest and a Levite, and then picked up by a Samaritan. This kind stranger binds up the traveler's wounds, takes him to an inn until he recovers and pays for his expenses. At the end of the story, Jesus explains that the actions of the Samaritan exemplify what it means to be a good neighbor. But let's take a couple of minutes and look at the parable more closely. It's very important when encountering a well-known story like the Good Samaritan not to confuse familiarity with understanding. Hearing something for the hundredth time and saying, oh, I know this one, can obscure an important message. There's often truth in familiar passages that we gloss over, aspects of biblical text that can inform our lives. Note the beginning of the parable when the lawyer comes seeking to test or trick Jesus. In his response, Jesus refers to the Torah or the law from which Christianity gets its roots. He asks the lawyer, what's written in the law? What do you read there? And the essence of the law boils down to a simple equation. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. In our tradition, there's a clear relationship between the vertical and the horizontal, between the requirement to serve God in heaven, the vertical, and live out our horizontal commitment in our relationships with each other in very specific ways. Drawing upon the Old Testament, Jesus puts this vertical and horizontal relationship together with the simple equation of love of God and neighbor. It may be a simple equation to understand, but it's one of the most difficult things to achieve. When examining this story about neighborliness, note the setting. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho, a road that still exists to this day. Every two years, I'll lead a trip to the Middle East with a group of Union Presbyterian Seminary students and friends of the seminary. Some of you have gone on these trips, and the group is always struck by the rocky, uncertain terrain from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's only a distance of 15 miles or so, but there's lots of encampments, animals wandering the very steep hills, poor families camped out along the road, and plenty of nooks and crannies that provide opportunities for thieves. This is disputed territory. It's not particularly safe, and there is great fear of the other on this road, just as there was in Jesus' day. As we think about the task of neighborliness, the story of the Good Samaritan and the uncertain terrain between Jerusalem and Jericho reminds us that we are not the first persons to face difficult times on rocky ground. We are not the first persons to face a crisis at the border. The Samaritan took a significant risk in helping a man he did not know in a dangerous location. And this parable challenges us to move outside of our comfort zone where people are most in need. 
There's nothing wrong with exercising common sense in a potentially dangerous situation and giving money to someone who will use it for self-destructive purposes can indeed be counterproductive. Such factors can make it difficult to figure out the best way to lend a hand. Yet as we consider this parable, we cannot forget the role of the priest and the Levite in the story. These were busy men with key responsibilities important people to know and they make it a point to avoid the wounded traveler altogether this part of the story with the priest and the levite is here for a reason jesus does not let us off the hook by allowing us to say i probably would not have been able to help the man anyway the situation was just too dangerous it's none of my business after all or i was just plain busy that day one of the core principles of Christianity is that when we have a struggling brother or sister in our midst, it's always our business. And even if there are tough circumstances, especially when there are tough circumstances, walking to the other side of the road is not an option. Barbara Brown Taylor, an Episcopal priest and beautiful writer, explains the task of neighborliness this way. My baseline for becoming Christian is to extend the same care to every human being that I wish for myself, to treat every human being as if he or she were Jesus in disguise. In similar fashion, Martin Luther King Jr. wanted believers to work towards a more just society where people don't fall through the cracks, and he used the model of the Good Samaritan. One day, I, qu he, I quote, one day we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road has to be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. In the last sermon of his life, the night before he died, Dr. King called for a dangerous unselfishness that would make America what it ought to be. He explained the task of neighborliness and how we should frame the question. The question is not, if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? If I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. The hero in this story, the Samaritan, understands that to love your neighbor as yourself requires one to think about his or her own needs before our own without regard for self-interest. This is what we call altruistic behavior or what Christians refer to as agape love, to think first about what will happen to someone if I do not help, as opposed to what will happen to me if I do. Many of us are attending weddings this summer, and we will hear 1 Corinthians 13 multiple times. At the end of the day, this does not really refer to romantic love, though it can include this, it refers to self-giving love, the kind of compassion that does not expect something in return. Here is where the King James Version of 1 Corinthians is actually more accurate since it translates agape love as charity. Charity is patient. Charity is kind. Charity is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing but rejoices in the truth. I always love hearing this at weddings, but what if we apply this notion of self-giving love, of agape, to the parable of the Good Samaritan and to our own lives? What if we expand our understanding of, of love to include a commitment to transforming the road to Jericho such that all persons can travel safely 
with the resources and strength they need for the journey. Let us not overlook the background of the neighbor in this story either. The hero is a Samaritan. This would have startled the original hearers of this parable that Jesus tells. Samaritans were half-breeds to many observant Jews in the first century context of Jesus' day. They were outcasts, and in the eyes of most Jews, they would not have been someone with whom you would want to associate. They weren't your people. Yet the odd person, the one who's not part of the larger crowd, is the one who saves the day while the priest and the Levite walk to the other side of the road. The neighbor in the story ends up being someone we would not expect, the Samaritan. The Greek word for neighbor here is plesion, and it means near one, someone who is close to you. Jesus inverts our conception of what a near one is. The near one in the story is actually an outsider. In seeking to live out this parable and the actions of the Samaritan, churches have a critical role to play in reclaiming community. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he addressed to fellow clergymen in the South, Dr. King lamented the reticence of churches to offer critique when injustice was clearly present. He expressed his frustration about those who sit on the sidelines, who prefer order to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. In our commitments as churches and within our denomination in making decisions about how to spend our time, money, and resources, Jesus challenges us to model ourselves after the Samaritan the outsider who took the risk even though he didn't have to, the one who moved out of his comfort zone even though he did not necessarily want to, the one who saw the man on the road as his sacred responsibility and not a thing to be avoided. This brings me to the detention camps on our border with Mexico. It's impossible this morning to hear the parable of the Good Samaritan and not be struck by the plight of these men, and men, women, and children and the actions of the Samaritan. Whatever your politics, and one of the hallmarks of First Presbyterian is that this is a purple congregation, this situation is untenable for us as Christians. We cannot imitate the priest and the Levite and ignore the situation. These issues are exceedingly complex, but it cannot be an excuse for inaction. If the church is to reclaim her voice in an increasingly secular culture, it is essential that we speak up when injustice is present to imitate the Samaritan in the story. Jesus saw himself as an outsider. He lifts up an outsider as the best example of loving one's neighbor. And if we want to be true to this story, we have to look out for the outsiders in our midst, the ones most vulnerable to hunger, disease, and mistreatment. We have to speak up loudly about the inhumane treatment at these centers until the situation changes and changes for good. The task of neighborliness has indeed changed and become more complex as our world has grown more interconnected. It can be difficult to determine exactly who our neighbors are, especially when we can contact anyone anywhere at the click of our mouse or the press of a button on our mobile device. Those helping us are often outsiders to us, individuals we don't even know personally. When we race through the drive through at Starbucks for a cup of coffee, we are benefiting from the hard work of the day laborer in South America. 
When we throw on a pair of running shoes and head to the gym or for a walk, we can be grateful to the women in China or Vietnam who expertly stitched our shoes together. When our computer breaks down and we find ourselves in need of assistance, we can thank the kind fellow at the call center in India, and if you're like me, you talk to him for a long time, who stays on the line until the problem is solved. We will probably never meet these people, but their efforts make our lives possible, and the interconnectedness of our world and economy forces us to think of global neighbors and not just local neighbors. It's incredible to think how interconnected we have become. My latest zany plan, and it's taking some coaxing with my wonderful wife, Helen, she's here, uh, is to buy a travel camper. If you have one and enjoy it, be sure to tell her how much you do after the service and how amazing your trips have been. The model I'm looking at is the R-Pod. It's smaller, lightweight, and easier to back into spots at the national parks we hope to visit over the next decade. I've even joined the RPOD Facebook group and asked a few questions. I get kind and amazing responses within moments. This is a group of maybe four to 5,000 persons around the country who want to support one another. If an RPOD breaks down, the owner takes a picture of the problem puts it on the Facebook forum, and five, five to ten people immediately respond how to fix it. Political put-downs or other taunts are strictly forbidden, and anyone who shows disrespect has to apologize or leave the group. Among the RPOD owners, no one cares what color you are, how much money you make, who you voted for, where you went to college, or even whether you went to college. The only thing that matters is helping each other out and enjoying the outdoors. Such small acts of kindness are important. They make the road from Jerusalem to Jericho safer for us all. We can never assume that what we are doing is inconsequential. There's another parable familiar to many of you that can help us think about the task of neighborliness in uncertain times. A man goes out to the beach and sees that it is covered with starfish that have washed up in the tide. A little boy is walking along, picking them up and throwing them back to the water. What are you doing, son, the man asks. You see how many starfish there are? You'll never, ever make a difference. The boy paused thoughtfully and picked up another starfish and threw it into the ocean. It sure made a difference to that one, he said. I want to close with a story about a mentor of mine, a man who was a professor at a college in India where I spent about a year of my life taking classes and teaching. One night it was late and we were driving in a bad part of town, racing home so that we could watch the American film that was on TV that night. There was a cheesy American romantic comedy on every Saturday night. I always made it a point to watch it with my mentor. It was a lame screwball co comedy and my mentor, Dr. Vijay, saw a young man on the side of the road whose motorcycle had given out. Smoke was coming out of the bike, and the lad was pretty steamed himself. His cousin's wedding was taking place on the other end of town, and he was going to miss it if he didn't get there immediately. If you've ever been to India, and I know some of you have, you know that driving across a city is no small undertaking with, car, with cows, carts, rickshaws, buses, and just about every other mode of conveyance on the road. But there we went, racing across town to get this stranger to his family wedding. 
It goes to show that lending a hand can often be an adventure and not a burden. The, the, the thing that amazed me the most about the episode is that neither the man we were helping nor Dr. Vijay thought much of the whole episode. I asked him about it later and he said, it's just what we are supposed to do. Friends, may we go forth from this place, resolve to make the road from Jericho to Jerusalem safer, with the conviction that this is Jesus' highest calling for us, to seek justice and to continue our efforts until all persons have the care and respect they deserve. Even as we fall short and turn to our own thoughts and needs, we ask for God's help in directing us outward to reclaim the task of neighborliness in uncertain times for the glory and mission of our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.